0: You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. This week, we're featuring one of the newest shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network, The Worker's Mic, which airs weekly on 720 WGN in Illinois. On Sunday, hosts Ken Edwards and Ed Maher discussed one of the more contested subjects within the U.S. labor movement at the moment the strike that wasn't on America's railroads, and Congress's move to prohibit industrial action, a move that has left many union members at odds with the Biden administration. Ken and Ed break down this complicated dispute and offer their own take.
1: It's what I call convenient capitalism. It's, that's okay. You know it's okay for the government to shove a contract down your throat when you know you're not going to get your tickle me elmo quickly (laughs) on christmas you know
0: even if you're not a soccer fan you must have found it hard to miss that the 2022 fifa world cup is well underway and it's remained a frequent topic of discussion on network shows in recent weeks in the first of two segments today will join Voice of the People on KFGM 101.5 in Missoula, Montana, where Soundman Jim and Mark Anderlich evaluate the endemic and widely reported labor violations that were involved in the construction of stadia for the Qatar tournament. They consider a recent article by Anil Valeli in Jacobin Magazine titled The World Cup Should Make Us Rethink our understanding of human rights surely
2: no spectator can watch this world cup without knowing about the desperate plight of migrant workers the repression of women in everyday life the crackdowns on press freedom and freedom to drink beer by the way and the oh no
0: i know that caught your attention jim (laughs) yes next we go to El Cafecito del Dia, where host Diane Harris is already thinking ahead to the 2026 World Cup, which will be hosted by Canada, Mexico, and the United States. Although there will be no new stadiums this time around, Ashwini Satankar and Valerie Alzaga join the show to describe the labor movement's advanced organizing efforts to ensure that the North American World Cup represents a square deal for workers, particularly those in the hospitality sector.
3: We understand that when we're talking about labor rights, we're talking about trade unions, and that really the best protection for workers is to have a union, is to have the right to build a union without repression, is to have those contracts. This is not Qatar in that sense.
0: Building Bridges Radio recently aired a conversation from the Tamiment Library at New York University, between two friends of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, journalists Hamilton Nolan and Kim Kelly. In the segment we're going to share with you today, Nolan and Kelly discuss generational change in the labor movement and how lessons from labor history can inform the cause of union reform today.
4: I think it's so common is that there, there's the old guard and then there's the new guard. There's people that are younger, who are newer, who have a lot of energy and new ideas. And the folks who used to be them, who have now ended up in a position where they're kind of part of the institution, they have a lot of knowledge, but they're a little less willing to listen to these new kids because they're new kids. What do they know?
0: For our final segment, we've got an extract from a brand new episode of On the Line, which if you haven't listened to it before, shares stories from British Columbia's rich labor history. In this episode, Rod Mickelberg takes us to the Fraser Valley Agricultural Region in the 1970s, where thousands of South Asian immigrants struggled against labor contractors and farmers to establish their livelihood. In this episode, you'll hear firsthand accounts from workers themselves, and learn about the day when Cesar Chavez came to town.
5: He said just the most amazing thing. He said, you know, uh, you guys, have an idea but many people have an idea an idea is a sound of one hand clapping an idea with an action to it is the sound that you should make
0: that's all coming up on this edition of the labor radio podcast weekly and remember if you like what you hear take a moment to subscribe and share the show it's what we call sonic solidarity i'm chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show.
1: Welcome to the Worker's Mic on 720 WGN. My name is Ken Edwards. I'm with the Midwest Coalition of Labor. Today with me, as always, I have Ed Maher from the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Ken. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? Oh, doing pretty good. It got a little chilly out. <laughs> yeah, no kidding.
6: <laughs> it is winter finally. Yeah, winter's here. That's all right. Yeah, it's okay. We got Christmas lights and Christmas music and all that stuff. And you know what? For the guys that plough snow, we, we
1: did you know that we call it snow time?
6: Snowbird time. That's pretty clever. <laughs> yeah. I always used to hear people say it snows green
1: in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, you've probably heard about it, Ken. I know you have. Uh, oh boy, this uh, the the rail strike, not strike contract. Right. This contract. is this has
6: been a saga that's gone on for months with uh, will they strike, won't they strike, um, and it looks like it was settled this week. And not a lot of people are very happy about it. Yeah,
1: and I wouldn't call it settled. It's, I'd call it shoved down everybody's throat. Uh, now, the background, real quick, two seconds is the rail workers and and I'm gonna butcher their name so I'm not going to bother well
6: there are about there are more than a dozen unions there's that a are bunch involved of different unions,
1: right yeah with a handful
6: of employers that yep. uh, are railroad owners and operators and uh, they and they
1: were negotiating and right. they came up with an agreement and that agreement was turned down by the membership which is you know not unusual it happens and what happens in that case is then you generally go back to the bargaining table and see if you can figure something out. Sometimes it works. Sometimes the employer will lock you out. Sometimes members will strike. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you go to federal mediation. I mean, there's a number of different ways to get at it. But when the, the workers speak and say, hey, this, this contract is unfortunately not good enough for us. Oh, and what's the issue? Well, I think the issue in this case was they wanted more sick days.
6: Right. And and the, the agreement, there was ultimately a, an agreement that was brokered with um, the president stepped in because, as we know, the supply chain has a massive impact on the economy. So I think that he charged uh, his transportations or his labor secretary, Marty Walsh, with, um, you know, brokering an agreement. And they they reached an agreement. I think it did not have sick days in it, which was the sticking point I for think, some of those. Maybe you had
1: one sick day or something or like s- that, something like that. And, and look, you know, there's going to be varying. You know, opinions on this, obviously, if you're a full-time employee and you're working 40 hours plus year round, you generally get paid sick leave. It's just kind of that simple. And right. then in this case, the workers at these railroads, if, if I'm getting this right, were saying that we're exhausted, that right. working shifts that we don't know when we're working, we're getting called in uh, to come back to work. They're saying that working while you're exhausted, that that tired is actually worse than driving drunk like it's literally it's literally unsafe and and i think
6: and they have to travel a lot i mean it's not a a thing where you show up to the same spot every day you're working all along the railroad
1: yeah for sure and so uh, you know i i don't think their ask was you know terrible right i think think it was
6: broken down that to to give seven paid sick days which was what these unions that voted against it wanted it would have been i think less than two percent of you know, the total profits that were generated um, by these railroads over the course of the past year, the railroads have been exceptionally profitable.
1: So, so back to what you said, it's not a big ask in my humble opinion, but the railroad companies didn't want to do it. They brokered a deal with, you know, like you said, with the, uh, Marty Walsh and, and the Biden administration, and that deal was rejected by the workers. And so,
6: well that deal there were there were some unions that accepted it. there were a handful of unions that that voted it down um, which reintroduced the threat back when that deal was struck uh, with the Biden administration. The sense was that okay we've averted a rail strike that right. you know the the president had said would cost the United States economy around two billion dollars a day slow down the the shipping of you know drinking water and things that are vital to the economy so it was in everyone's interest that um that this be settled in some way or another you know that this be addressed and not just you know hands off let them go on strike for a month until they sort it out kind of thing the 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 nation has an interest in in bringing this to some sort of a settlement is is where they were at
1: yeah and and I don't you know I understand that concept but it's it's what I call convenient capitalism it's that's okay you know, it's OK for the government to shove a contract down your throat when, you know, you're not going to get your tickle me Elmo quickly <laughs> on Christmas, you know, but, you know. Well,
6: right. The the settlement that they were that they were working toward ultimately was voted down or was, just wasn't accepted by a couple of unions. So at that point. Right. Um, you know, it's it's what as as the president and, you know, as his administration, what do you do now? Uh, and his immediate response was to ask Congress to. Um, to to push it, to impose it without the sick days. I mean there there was no talk of a compromise. I think um, they
1: tried I think there were some folks that tried to get the sick days put into the contract oh, right. the, and and that was shot down. But when you have people like Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz voting the same way, right. you know you have a problem.
6: For sure. I, I think I think that the, the, the Biden administration had pushed for the agreement with no sick days. You know the the workers wanted seven, the employers wanted zero um, and the thing that has enraged so many folks is that Biden's push was to move forward with zero sick days. And when it passed the House, the House also passed another bill um, that uh, included those sick days. It got to the Senate. Um, the bill to impose the, the, the act to impose the agreement with no sick days passed, I think, 80 to 15 um, with Rand Paul, of course, voting present. Thank you for that, Rand. Always so helpful, Mr. Paul. Um, but uh, the the
1: motion to, to grant the sick days was uh, was defeated. Here we have, you know, literally the government stepping in and saying, "You are going to go to work. You're going to go back to work." And I'll tell you something that you know, take a step back. In Ontario, a couple of months ago, the Ontario teachers decided they were going to strike. Mm -hmm. I think either Ontario had a law or passed a law that didn't allow teachers to strike. You know what the teachers did? Went on strike anyway. They went on strike anyway. (laughs) 55,000 of them went on strike. And at the end of the day, refused to go back to work until that law was rescinded. Law was rescinded. They won their strike and they went back to work. That is power. That is solidarity. For sure. And what I'm telling the uh, railroad workers is to um, go on strike. (laughs) I'm not saying to violate the law. I'm just saying don't show up to work. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. How, I don't know how you say any of that. That's all for us. I'm Ken Edwards. He's Ed Maher. And this is The Worker's Mike, powered by the Midwest Coalition of Labor. The preceding episode of The Worker's Mike was powered by the Midwest
5: Coalition of Labor and sponsored by Megan Financial, Premise Health and Voya Financial. For additional information and podcasts of The Worker's Mic, visit WGNRadio.com.
7: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula community radio, live-streaming on 101.5 KFGM, no-punctuation.org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash vop hyphen montana with jim soundman, and
2: the one and only mark anderlich so how does the world cup competition have to do with human rights well i'm glad you asked that jim um otherwise we wouldn't have a show <laughs> um <laughs> and the answer is forthcoming but uh, for the remainder of our Word of the Week segment, we will follow the November 21st article in Jacobin Magazine by Neil valelli entitled, The World Cup Should Make Us Rethink Our Understanding of Human Rights. So there's, how's that for a teaser, Jim? Um, I
0: love being teased, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and this is how he starts out. It pays not to think too much about the wider environment surrounding football today, soccer today. Well, I I suppose American football could be included in this as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Excess, greed, ferocious self-interest, and stark inequalities are its guiding principles. Repressive states intoxicated on the rewards of fossil capital now use the sport as a pawn in their geopolitical game, while players market useless and ethically corrupt NFTs to their millions of fans. In the face of this depressing scene, it has been encouraging to see several football associations and many international players take a stand on human rights in the lead-up to the World Cup in Qatar. And Qatar is located on the Persian Gulf in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. Um, across the the Persian Gulf from Iran. Um, Surely no spectator can watch this World Cup without knowing about the desperate plight of migrant workers the repression of women in everyday life, the crackdowns on press freedom, and freedom to drink beer, by the way, and the oh no, I know that caught your attention, Jim. Yes, <laughs> um, but um, I, I'm 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 not making fun of the rest of this, and, and the punishment of LGBTQ people uh, in Cotter. It's been it's been well documented in 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 the mainstream mainstream press, at least most right. of it. Um, whether spectators care or not is a different question of course but the signs are that most football fans would prefer that the world cup was not taking place in a country with such a terrible human rights record
0: indeed yeah and
7: uh cutter and, uh, is way up there
2: <laughs> yeah yeah Um among other things i mean it's it, it's uh A punishable offense to exhibit, you know, gay or lesbian tendencies. It's illegal to engage in a strike or to form a union. Mm -hmm. It's uh, three, well, probably more than that, more like 80% of its population are immigrant workers who have no rights there. In fact, they get their passports taken from them when they get there. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, so it's like Deep South, 150 years ago. <laughs> pretty close. Years. Except right, ex- except Cotter uh, and the other, uh, many other Middle Eastern countries have a ton of money, which the U.S. Right. South really didn't have uh, as much. Actually, so. they were doing pretty darn well. That's why they thought, oh, well, who needs the Northeast?
1: They're just dragging yeah, us down. But, but the, that's a topic but, for another show.
2: yeah. <laughs> I'll just say the North had way more resources and money than the South in the Civil War. Um, Mm. So um, anyway- uh, They did by
8: 1870.
2: (laughs) Um, Thanks everyone. Uh, Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.
4: Bienvenidos al desvío. Encountering Challenges. Making decisions confronting struggles, and understanding the reasons for different positions are but a part of being engaged in our community's ability to discuss and make advances toward a more inclusive and fair society. However, there is no set formula to achieve these objectives. In an era where so much misinformation thrives, como Latinos, tenemos que estar informados. We must be informed. El desvío, many roads, one destination, presents its listeners with 30 minutes of thought-provoking discussions on the relevant issues we face.
3: Hello, my name is Diane Harris, and I am Lockless Communications and Policy Associate. While the 2022 FIFA World Cup is already underway, so is the preparation for the 2026 FIFA World Cup. We are joined now by Ashwini Sogbhankar of the AFL-CIO's International Affairs team, as well as Valerie Alzega, the Deputy Director of Global Labor Justice. Ashwini has worked to protect labor justice both domestically and globally for over 20 years, as part of the Unite Here, the International Commission for Labor Rights, and the Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum. I just want to say that we've been pretty yes. hard at work, I think, for uh, many months already, really building a pretty smart and well organized network that led into the creation of a coalition called Dignity 26, which our idea really is to, again, have many voices and have our diversity be also our strength. So a lot of us come from labor. I come from Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum, but we have not only the FLCIO, another really important international folks on the labor side, TUC, and actually organizations of athletes as well. But we also have migrant rights organizations, we have community organizations that are going to be pushing and are pushing all of us to really think about community interest agreements and demands. And we also have the, actually the supporters, the fans, the organizations that really are also, um, important to raise because they're from the beginning, part of our, let's say, of our strength is to understand that we're all connected. Being in the FA- AFL-CIO, working with global liberal justice, really migrants are part of who we are. I don't want to say here are migrants and here are workers. We are the migrants yeah, that course. are of- in hospitality with Unite Here, in 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 security and services in SCIU that, you know what I'm saying? So we're working with the federations. We're working with different trade unions in aviation, in transport, in stadiums and services. And I think that's important because I want to make sure that we understand that when we're talking about labor rights, we're talking about trade unions, and that it really the best protection for workers is to have a union, is to have the right to build a union without repression, is to have those contracts. And this is not Qatar in that sense. Earlier this summer, FIFA announced the 16 different host cities across the three countries: Canada, Mexico, and the United States. So, how has the work of the labor movement and how has the approach changed since these cities were announced?
8: The origins of our campaign. Were about thing host city selection in the u s, right? So there were seventeen cities in the u s competing for originally ten spots, though so we ended up winning them. And campaign was really was directed toward looking to the commitments that cities had made with respect to their human rights plans on paper. And now that we're in a different phase, it's not just about making those plans on paper. Real, but about trying to, to improve the, the basic commitments that, that cities have made. In, in many cases, those human rights plans were quite weak. And so we continue to push for, um, a real floor across all of those plans. And in some cities, that's going to be especially critical because they are either in right to work states or they're in states where state law preempts Cities including Atlanta, Houston, and Dallas from trying to do anything good and decent, setting living wage policies. So we think it's going to be all the more critical that that FIFA step up and and make commitments itself to to preserve a floor.
3: I think after the selection, we were happy to see city cities that had amazing plans and were really inclusive and engaging stakeholders, and we were actually not very happy about some cities that did not have very robust human rights plans who had not involved a lot of stakeholders. We have our work cut out, right, in cities where there is not a lot of labor rights or strong unions. We are going to see spaces where exploitation may happen, and so that is upon us to really, as labor movement and as a coalition, Dignity 2026, to really look at those cities where, you know, where we understand the standards or we may be pushing nationally for standards. Those are spaces where we know maybe the infrastructure and the way in which cities and states run are not as robust as in others when it comes to respecting several labor rights and human rights. I do think that hopefully a dialogue with FIFA and our push to really have some standards are going to be actually having an influence on those cities that don't have, you know, robust labor rights like Atlanta, for example. But at the same time, we know that that's going to be be up to us to, just because we have a framework and let's see if we can get to an actual enforceable framework, that's what we want, then we need to enforce it. And so it would be those two things we need to think about at a city level. The good news is that I think at city levels, we have very strong players all across the country, and hopefully this will be also an opportunity to, again, raise issue when there is no trade unions or where there is repression, when workers are trying to raise their voice around any kind of violations or where athletes or supporters may have issues or where other kinds of rights are not being upheld. Yeah. Now that's definitely very helpful. We cannot forget that behind every piece of entertainment are the hundreds of workers that make it possible. Thank you for listening to El Desvio, Many Roads, One Destination. Our podcast explores the many ways that we activists and trade unionists try to get to the destination of social and economic justice.
9: Mimi Rosenberg.
0: I'm Ken Nash. And we're building bridges. Fight Like Hell, the history of American labor is uprising, and workers today taking up the challenge.
9: Fighting like
0: hell for labor change. Kim Kelly, author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and Hamilton Nolan, labor journalist and author of the soon-to-be-released The Year of the Hammer. Look at how the labor movement can be the tool that fixes America if it chooses to rise to the challenge
9: they unearth the stories of the people farm laborers, domestic workers factory employees behind some of the labor movement's biggest successes and how they spark workers today to rise up against capital with a new militancy for power to the working class let's listen to Kim Kelly and Hamilton Nolan recorded at the famed Tammitth library. <laughs>
7: You've written this book about labor history and labor journalist and as we both know, like it's one thing to write about labor and interview all these inspiring union people and then there's also your own union, right? And and we're both in the Writer's Guild East and I'm interested in how uh, writing this book and learning all of inspiring stories of labor's radical history have informed what you do as a union member and as an as elected representative in our union.
4: Because in, in it's something we've experienced in our own union that I've seen like through my research and just throughout talking to people in other unions that I think is so common is that there's the old guard and then there's the new guard. There's people that are younger, who are newer, who have a lot of energy and new ideas that they become organized, they get involved, they want to change everything. And the folks who used to be them, who have now ended up in a position where they're kind of part of the institution, they have a lot of knowledge, they have a lot of skills, a lot to offer, but they're a little less willing to listen to these new kids because they're new kids. What do they know? It's something that unions have been dealing with for And it kind of comes down to how unions and union leaderships, the union leadership decides to navigate that. Sometimes it gets very acrimonious. And sometimes reform slaves happen and sometimes that's a good thing. Look at the Teamsters with the Teamsters for a Democratic Union movement, look at the UAW with the one member, one vote campaign, like there's such a hunger, I think, for more democracy and more radicalism and more militancy in the labor movement. Some union leadership is a little uncomfortable with that. But there's more of us than there are of them ultimately. Like the rank and file should kind of dictate what happens, right? It kind of makes me think of this story from the 30s and 40s, uh, this one specific union on the waterfront, San Francisco, the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union, which was very radical, very gay, predominantly black and Asian, real red, like socialist communist union. <laughs> it's one of my favorite sections of the book. It started out being like racist and exclusionary all the leadership were white they were not reflective of the membership and of the times and of the needs of their union and so what the union leadership did one day they looked around and were like oh we're not doing our jobs right and they all resigned and then they brought in like the next round of leaders like were black and brown rank and file types they were real red they were much more representative of the union until they got crushed in the you know the Red Scare (laughs) like happened to a lot of cool unions they were really powerful and really inclusive and just did a great job I like thinking about that as an example of what can happen when people listen to one another.
9: We're Building Bridges. You've been listening to a discussion from the Labor Library Tamarment with Kim Kelly, author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor, and Hamilton Nolan, labor journalist, author of the soon-to-be-released The Year of the Hammer. I'm Mimi Rosenberg. And I'm Ken Nash. Educate, agitate, and organize for another world as possible. (laughs)
7: Welcome to another edition of On The Line, the podcast that shines a light on stories from BC's rich labour heritage. I'm your dapper host, Rod Mickleborough. In this episode, we tell the inspiring tale of a group of dedicated individuals who took up the cause of Fraser Valley farm workers, toiling in dreadful conditions not far from the gleaming towers of downtown Vancouver. And we tell it, mostly, through their own words. It's a saga that includes death and violence and courageous union organizing. And like so much of this province's labor history, it should be much better known. The Fraser Valley contains some of the richest farmland in Canada, providing a steady supply of fruits and vegetables for the people of the Lower Mainland and beyond. But getting that produce from farm to table has long been rife with exploitation. In the 1970s, thousands of South Asian immigrants worked on these farms, recruited by often unscrupulous labor contractors who skimmed their wages, and working for farmers who often housed them in virtual third world living quarters, with almost no attention paid to their health and safety. This was also a time of growing social activism in BC and the appalling situation of the farm workers did not go unnoticed. Among those shocked by their treatment was Raj Chohan. Like many South Asians who came to BC in the 1970s, he had first found work on the farms of the Fraser Valley. He was taken aback by what he saw in the fields of a country as rich as Canada. When he began asking questions, he was fired. That experience set him on a determined course to do something about the plight of the farm workers.
10: So, met with Dr. Hisharma, e. and through that, met with many other good people like Dr. Chin Banerjee, uh, Dr. De Burma in Montreal, and Dr. Vinod Mabai in New York. Um, as a group together, we started one organization called Indian People's Association in North America. Uh, The main focus of that was, again, talking about workers' rights, people's rights, equality, justice, uh, anti-racism, those kind of things. And, you know, uh, I became uh, aware of uh, the situation in the fields here Uh, after that. And, you know, we found out there was no law covering uh, farm workers, uh, either the Employment Standards Act or the Labour Code and Health and Safety Regulation, none that applied uh, to farm workers. So, you know, all those things really um, uh, encouraged us to do something about it. Sharon Gill
7: arrived in B.C. in 1967. He first worked at a sawmill in Williams Lake. But after he was injured, he went into social work and became a dedicated social activist. That led him to the cause of the farm workers. He helped the Canadian Farm Workers Union become a social movement as well. Sharan Gill's son, Paul, remembers the time Cesar Chavez, legendary head of the United Farm Workers of America, came north to speak to them.
5: He said just the most amazing thing. He said, you know, uh, you guys have an idea, but many people have an idea. An idea is the sound of one hand clapping. An idea with an action to it is the sound that you should make. And it goes like this. And then the next thing he says, I want you to clap with me exactly the way I do. And he goes like this, and then everyone claps in that manner. He says, "That's how organized people clap," and it was just blew me away because you had this auditorium of a thousand people hanging on his every word. So Cesar Chavez was really an amazing gentleman, and and I know that after that, uh, my dad was so uh, high from that experience, just having him there. And-
7: the National Film Board's well-made documentary on the farmworkers' struggle, A Time to Rise includes a clip of Cesar Chavez talking to the farm workers. Thank you very much. I wanted to start by showing you how we do the applause in our union. We do it organized, because it sounds better. Let me show you. You follow me, okay?
5: when they're organized they're better for you and me always <laughs>
7: time it was as noble a chapter as there is in the history of the bc labor movement we hope you've enjoyed this look back through the voices of the participants themselves i'm your host rod Mickleborough. we'll see you next time on the line
0: And that is it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited and written this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show. Our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.